Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are going to read uh, verses 14 through 22. We're going to talk about them for a few moments, and then we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let's begin in verse 14. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And we'll pause there. Um, I'm hesitant to take on the rest of the chapter. I think that there are elements of, of these verses that we've read here that will apply uh, next week as we come to the end of chapter 10. But uh, I believe that the Lord has impressed upon me to spend a little bit of time talking about idolatry and a whole lot of time talking about sin. You'll notice in verse 14, the pattern should be familiar. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you turn back to chapter 6, you'll notice in verse 18 a similar command. Paul writing now, Flee sexual immorality. Chapter 10, verse 14, flee from idolatry. Chapter 18, or chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Paul seems to have a repetitive approach to the potential of sin, doesn't he? Flee, run, get away. Now in chapter 10, He's telling them to flee from idolatry and he's circling back to this because there are those who recognize that the meat that has been offered in idol-worshiping temples is not somehow contaminated physically. It's just meat. And just because the meat was cut up inside a temple doesn't make it unclean or unworthy or sin to touch it. He has spent a good bit of time explaining that those who are strong in their understanding of these things can eat meat that has come out of that temple worship environment, sold in the meat markets. They can eat it without sin, understanding that the meat itself is nothing, nor are the statues inside the temples anything. It's just nonsense. It's just 
evil. And the food doesn't make it evil. The worship makes it evil. But now he returns back to a specific concern. And I think he has in mind that some Christians, having heard him lay out very clearly that an idol is nothing, the meat that's offered inside that temple is nothing, it doesn't belong to an idol because an idol is an idol and can't own anything to begin with. I think he has in mind a concern that some Christians might take one step beyond what he intends them to take. And some might say, well, if an idol is nothing, and if the meat is nothing, then why should we abstain from these big festivals surrounding the idols? Why should we abstain from the meals and the feasts surrounding these temples? I mean, if the idol inside the temple isn't anything and the meat we get from what happens inside that temple isn't anything, then why should we have any qualms at all about participating in the various public feasts, the parades, the ceremonies? Why should we withdraw ourselves from these things if in our Christian strength we know there's nothing behind them anyway? And that is one step further than Paul intends them to go. And so he says, flee from idolatry. It would have been very hard to flee from idolatry in the city of Corinth. There are temples and false gods everywhere. The feasts and the holidays... They're similar to our feasts and holidays. Often our feasts and holidays revolve around religious beliefs, right? Religious ideas. So did theirs. Except they didn't come from a Judeo-Christian background. They came from a pagan background. It would have been very hard then to withdraw from all these feasts, to withdraw from all these celebrations, to withdraw even from the community as they practiced all of these worshipful activities. And I think we could forgive them for saying, look, I can just, I can just have the meal with everybody else. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's just part of belonging. I remember in my uh, mid-20s, early 20s, the second George Bush was president at the time, and I knew that the second George Bush uh, was at least publicly, verbally, a very committed Christian. That's how he presented himself. Perhaps I was young enough to believe that. I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. But I remember a story that hit the news that really caught my attention. And it showed him in an Asian country. I forget if it was Japan or China. I could have looked it up, but I didn't. And part of the state visit to one of these Asian countries was visiting this shrine to one of the gods, one of the ancient gods of these people. And in visiting the shrine, all state visitors were supposed to bow during the service and bend their knee before the shrine while they did their little publicity, taking photos, etc., etc. A big state visit, you know, when foreign ambassadors and kings and queens and presidents come to the United States, they get their picture taken and they meet in the White House and they talk. It's a big to-do. And it was like that, only this is a shrine. 
It's called a shrine to a god with a name, an idol. And I remember thinking, I don't think that he should be doing that as a Christian. And I think Paul is saying here, he should not be doing that. Why? Because the idol is really some powerful God and we don't want to give him any attention? No. Why? Because by bending the knee, he's professing his allegiance and changing his relationship with Christ fundamentally to a relationship with the God. That's the commitment in his heart? No. But because it's idolatry. By definition, it's idolatry. And you should run from idolatry. And what fellowship does a Christian have with an idol? What fellowship does a Christian have with the worship of an idol? What regard should they have for it at all? None. And Paul really takes that tone here, and it's not hard to understand, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. His reasoning, his logic is simple. Verse 15. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, you ought to be smart enough to figure this out. Okay? You determine whether or not this makes any sense at all. You ever have anybody say something like that to you? Like, hey, look, I'm going to tell you the truth, and you decide for yourself. They only say that when they know there's only one conclusion to come to. And that's what Paul's doing here. You decide for yourselves here. Verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. The table here in front of us. Communion. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Are we not coming together in communal worship and remembrance of Jesus Christ together? Aren't we joining ourselves under this covenant which Jesus says is his new covenant in his blood? Aren't we, as we take this, committing ourselves to right fellowship with Jesus Christ and each other? For we, though we are many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one cup. See the community. We are all, you know, a bunch of different people. But we are coming together under this one covenant as one body, under one bread, one cup. And then he takes Israel as an example too. He says in verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh. In other words, don't go do what Israel's doing right now because Israel, they were still offering sacrifices in Jerusalem when Paul wrote this. He's not saying I think that's a good idea, but just think about what they're doing for a second. Think about the animal sacrifices that are still being offered in the temple. Are not those who eat of those sacrifices partakers of the altar? The priest and for some offerings the people would share a portion together from the animal sacrifice that had been offered on the altar to God. The only people eating of it are those partaking in the worship. That's what he's saying. So verse 19, what am I saying? That an idol is anything or that what's offered to an idol is anything? He says, I'm not contradicting myself. I'm not saying that that statue has some power that we should respect and be afraid of. I'm not saying that the food that's offered to that statue is somehow contaminated. Rather, verse 20, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. 
If we have established that when we share in a worship meal together, we are pronouncing our fellowship under that deity, I want you to know there's nothing behind that idol except demonic influence. Satanic influence that would captivate people, that would lead people away from the one true God, that would demand the worship of rocks and stone and gold and wood. and It's all satanic. How is it satanic? This is captivating people's worship which belongs to the one true God and leading them away into the slavery of spiritual darkness where they will spend eternity in hell under the judgment of the one true God. Of course this is satanic. Or do you think that men on their own invented idols and temples and ideas like this? Men under the influence and the direction of a satanic power operating behind them have decided to take the glory and the devotion that belongs only to the one true God and bestow that glory and honor on images of gold and silver and wood do the people who are worshipping those idols realize that they are worshipping under the religious systems of demons? No. They don't know that. They are deceived. Jesus calls Satan a liar. He is the father of lies. Those are the words of Jesus. He said, rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. This is the part where he says, judge for yourselves whether I'm right. Does this not make sense? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. <laughs> I mean, they don't go together. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And then he says, or would we provoke the Lord to jealousy? God is not going to be happy with that. And then the rhetorical question, <laughs> are we stronger than he? Are you ready to contend with God? Are you ready to tick off the Almighty? Are you ready to pick a fight with him? Would you put him in his place? You can't do this. Instead, flee from idolatry. I think it's a pretty simple message. I don't think it's very challenging. So I'm going to spend some time and talk for a minute about what idolatry is and ask you to think about idolatry. Sure. But not just idolatry. Idolatry is an inward sin. Idolatry is an inward sin. When we commit idolatry, if we commit idolatry, we inwardly give the devotion that belongs to the one true God to something else. We inwardly give the worship and the adoration that belongs to the one true God to something else. That's an inward sin. Now, however that comes out on the outside could be a lot of different ways. 
Maybe it's a bended knee. Maybe it's a song of praise in some temple. Maybe it's partaking in a big feast in the honor of that God. However it comes out is really inconsequential to what's happening on the inside. What's happening on the inside is a realignment of the glory and honor and devotion that belongs to God and redirected to something else. It's idolatry. This should open our eyes to a reality that is often expressed in the scripture. And that is there are two kinds of sin, if you will. There is the outward sin that manifests itself in behavior, the things that we do. That's bad. The Bible speaks to it. We have commands about it. But behind the outward sin that shows up in our behavior, there is an inward sin driving it. So there is a sin on the outside. I lie. I steal. I murder. And then there is sin on the inside. In the Ten Commandments, you don't get very far before you start to deal with sin on the inside. There's the command, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house or his wife or his donkey. What is coveting? Well, coveting is wanting for yourself what belongs to someone else. That's an inward thing. Now, thou shalt not steal is an outward thing. Thou shalt not commit adultery is an outward behavior. But thou shalt not covet, that's an inward behavior. Jesus in Matthew 5 is speaking to a group or groups of Jewish people in the Sermon on the Mount who have lived far too long under the influence of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees thought that the way one maintained their righteousness before God was by keeping a very close watch on their outward behavior. They became very legalistic about this through the rabbinical writings that had taken place since the book of Malachi closed out the Old Testament, the coming of Jesus. They had come up with all sorts of outward behavior rules. We got to keep the Sabbath. So, an outward rule, you can only go this far on the Sabbath. Only walk this many steps. Only go this many feet. We want to make sure we stay clean, so you have to wash your hands before you eat a meal. They went on and on, and, and it had all become being righteous on the outside. Jesus goes on to call these guys whitewashed tombs. Now, that doesn't paint a vivid picture. You ever go walking through a cemetery and you say, my goodness, that is a... That is an enormous statue. That is a beautiful... Look at that. That is an impressive thing. And you realize that what's inside there is just dead men's bones, dust and ash. This glorious outward manifestation. That's what Jesus calls these guys. Whitewashed tombs. Looking real good on the outside and inside full of dead men's bones. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to all the people who had learned under these whitewashed tombs. And he says, you've heard that it says, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, whoever gets angry at his brother without cause has already committed murder. You've heard, thou shalt not commit adultery, outward behavior. I tell you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery, inward. So the scriptures establish a really clear cause and effect here that we ought to pay attention to. There is sin on the outside that manifests itself in behavior. And the scriptures are not silent about sin on the outside. But sin on the outside comes from sin on the inside. And one is not righteous simply because they have managed to curtail the sin on the outside. That does not make one right with God. That does not justify one before God. In common vernacular, that ain't enough. There are many people who manage to control their instincts and behavior in a way that is acceptable to society so that their sin on the inside doesn't come out in ways on the outside that's going to bring on them social repercussions. You know, they manage to control their anger at work and so they don't get fired. They manage to control their frustrations and their bitterness towards other co-workers because they know they got to avoid conflict. They manage to control their greed. And so they curtail their instincts to do things that on the outside are going to be condemned. They, they learn how to control outward behavior so it doesn't bring upon them outward repercussions. But on the inside, they're no more clean than the next man. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I want to look at the life of David for a minute. First Samuel chapter 16 comes on the heels of First Samuel chapter 15. I know that's enlightening. In chapter 15, Saul has disqualified himself from being the king of Israel. He was appointed, anointed, the first king of Israel. He'd done some good things and ultimately done some very bad things and God has had enough of Saul. He disqualifies him. Samuel, who was the prophet of the Lord, Samuel, the one who went and found Saul when he was just a wee lad hiding among the baggage. Samuel is very distraught that Saul has disqualified himself and that God has rejected King Saul. And nevertheless, God finds Samuel in verse 1 of chapter 16. And it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Quit whining, Samuel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. What an interesting way to describe that. I have found a king among his sons. No, no, no. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. There is a boy among the sons of Jesse whom I have prepared expressly for this purpose. Verse 2, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. If King Saul, whom you've rejected, hears that I'm going to go anoint another king, he's not going to let that happen. 
But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? I love that. <laughs> Samuel had a reputation. In other words, he was well known. And as the elders who would sit at the gate and either allow admittance or reject admittance to those travelers who were coming by, as they saw Samuel coming, they wondered, have we done something to anger the Lord? That the prophet of the Lord is coming. Do you come in peace or not? So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem, and they say, do you come in peace? Verse 5, he said, peaceably. Must have been a relief. I heard someone do that. Yeah. Thank goodness. Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, I don't know much about Eliab, but he was one of the sons of Jesse. And Samuel knew he was there to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And when he saw this guy, he must have been impressive. He said, surely, this is the guy. You know, one for one. First son I see, this is him. But he doesn't have as good a luck as Abraham's servant when he went on that long journey. Those of you who know that story. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What does the Lord see when he looks at your heart? Let's just be honest. The Lord can see right through you. He can see right through you. He sees through your impressive outfit or your unimpressive outfit. He sees right through your job and your vocation and your good-looking family. He sees right through society's free pass that they give you as, oh, that guy, he's a pretty good guy. He sees right through that. He looks right to the heart. And he tells Samuel, you know, Saul was a pretty impressive guy. How'd he do as king? This guy alive, he's a pretty impressive guy. I have refused him. Why? Because the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What a lesson he gives Samuel. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. I don't know what you know about shepherding, but it was not a high calling. It was the job you would give to the youngest. Basically, you just have to kind of keep an eye on them. 
Masters would give slaves the job of taking care of the sheep. Uneducated slaves, perhaps unfaithful slaves, but they could sit in the field and make sure the sheep didn't run away. There's yet the youngest. Here he is with the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring, bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good looking. That's, that's pretty cool, right? I wish I had a verse in the Bible that said I was good looking. But David gets it. Uh, TBD on what the Lord thinks of my outward appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. For this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Okay. David's heart passes the test. Pretty impressive, right? Look at Psalm 24. And we will see a Psalm of David. The man whose heart passes the test. Psalm 24. We'll just read it. We won't go through it verse by verse. Any kind of detail. Just read it. Ten verses. Psalm 24, beginning in verse 1. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Everything you see, touch, hear, smell belongs to God. Every person you run into belongs to God. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may walk before this God to whom everything belongs? Who may approach Him? Who may worship Him? Who may have fellowship? Who may walk up the hill to His temple, His dwelling place? Or who may stand in His holy place? Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, 1 Corinthians 10, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. Who? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Are your hands clean? Good. Clean up the outward? That's good. Is your heart pure? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him. This is truly God's people who seek his face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And we see the manifestation of that in the person of Jesus Christ, don't we? the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Who may have fellowship with him? He who has a clean heart. Now, a question. So we know that our hearts need to be clean. That there shouldn't be any unjust anger in there. Any bitterness. Any covetousness. That there shouldn't be any unrepentance. Any selfish ambition or conceit or pride. That there shouldn't be any maliciousness, any strife, 
any slanderous thought towards another person. None of that should be in there. How? How? How do you get a clean heart? Now, if anybody's going to raise their hands and say, oh, I'm there, my heart is clean, I'm good, we can say that legally before God. He has dealt with our sin legally at the cross. But if you are not in humility able to say, like Paul, I am the chief of sinners, you are in self-denial. How? How do we sanctify our hearts? Not how do we limit our behavior. Twelve-step programs can do that. How do we sanctify our hearts? How are we as people, who we are on the inside, transformed in such a way that we become people who we currently are not? How does that happen? How do you do that? You don't. You don't. You can't. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 asks this rhetorical question. Here it is. Proverbs 20 verse 9. Just a one verse. Who can say, asks Solomon, who has the audacity to say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. <laughs> who can say that? You can go read Proverbs chapter 20 on your own. He doesn't provide an answer. It's not like commending someone to go try to make... No, 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 no. Who can do it? The Bible says the human heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? The, Lord, the, the Bible says Jesus did not entrust himself to men in his first coming because he knew what was inside man. The prophet Isaiah when commissioned to the Lord to be a prophet, says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. Pastor, I have uh, trouble with my drinking. Pastor, I have trouble with my marriage. Pastor, I have trouble with my kids. I can't quit yelling. I can't quit hollering. I can't quit feeling this way. Tell me how to stop acting like this. What am I supposed to say to that? Tell me how to stop yelling at my wife. Okay, ready? Stop yelling at your wife. Did it work? <laughs> you know, it's an old comedy skit about the same thing. You know? Guy goes in and sees a shrink, and, a guy, and the shrink's sitting there behind the, the table, and, and he says, hey, I can't stop doing this. He says, okay, are you ready? I'm going to help you. And I says, yeah, I'm ready. What do I do? He says, stop it! And he just yells at him across the table. Yeah, and he goes on and on and on. And he charges him like $1.50 for his time. Right? What am I supposed to say? 
What do you want? You want advice for me on how to change your outward behavior? Stop doing those things. I don't have any other great advice except if you find that you can't stop doing those things, buddy, the problem is not on the outside. And things ain't going to get magically better when you start forcing yourself to talk a little nicer and act a little better. If you want to put up some barriers and some obstacles to protect you from sin, go for it. I'm not telling you don't do that. But if the problem is here, the problem is here, and you can't fix that. Now we know a little bit about David's life. We know that eventually he finds himself in a place that he shouldn't be. He wasn't listening to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Hadn't been written yet. But that says, beware, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, God will always provide a way of escape. That's what we, we were there last week. Don't sin. Yeah, but David was in a place he shouldn't have been. He was up on his palace rooftop when he should have been out in the field going to war. And he looks out and he sees Bathsheba. And there's a way of escape. He could just get down off the roof and go to bed. He could get on his horse and ride to war. But he doesn't escape. He falls headlong into that temptation. And for the safety of little ears, that's as much as we'll say. The man after God's own heart, the man whom God had prepared from the man, Jesse, the one whom God accepted when he rejected all of his brothers, had defiled himself. What is he going to do about it? Here's David in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in my inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me, God, a clean heart that's not defiled by everything that I've done. That's not corrupted by all the thoughts that I shouldn't have. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew in me a spirit that holds and clings to you instead of one that wanders after naked ladies on rooftops. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Do you know the generosity of God's Spirit in transforming your inward parts? In changing your heart of stone 
and to a heart that bleeds over sin. How do you get a clean heart? How do I stop sinning? You cry out to God in faith. You serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 19 of Psalm 51 says, If you do this, then I will go and I will lead out in the offering of bulls and sacrifices. I will come back into fellowship with you. I will love you. I will serve you. Jesus is our blood offering, not a bull or a sacrifice, as Justin read. The blood of animals doesn't forgive sin. If it did, then they wouldn't keep offering the blood of animals year after year in all those Old Testament passages. If it forgave sin, it would be done once and for all. But only one sacrifice could be done once and for all to give you a clean heart. That's the work of Jesus Christ. Here is Isaiah 53 verse 12 talking about what Jesus did. Now listen to this. It says, Jesus will be exalted. He will be exalted because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And he made an intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ. And we come to this table monthly. And Pastor Steve stands up and he asks us to look inside in our hearts. And he asks us to repent and deal with sin. As we partake in a covenant relationship with God purchased with the Son, with the blood of His only Son. And I just want to add whatever clout I can from the scriptures this morning. That when Steve comes up here and he calls you to the seriousness of what we're about and what we're doing, I want you to understand God can see right through you. He knows what's in your mind. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your soul. And he would give you a clean heart he would transform your life. He would work powerfully in you just as David is pleading in Psalm 51 for God to allow him to work powerfully under this new transformation, this new repentant spirit. But do you want that? Are you concerned at all about what's inside your heart? Or are you merely content with cleaning up the outward behavior? Are you concerned with dealing with what's in here? If you are, by faith, God can transform you into a person that you are not and cannot be on your own. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Nobody can say that. But God can do that. And let me tell you, Alice and I celebrated 20 years of marriage this week. And I don't know how many times over the past week we kind of just smiled and chuckled 
at how different we are as people from who we were at the beginning. And I'm not just talking about changes that happen in normal marriages. I have watched the power of God work in my life and in my wife's life. By God's grace, we are not the same people. There is evidence all over the congregation this morning of the, transform, the transforming power of God. Whoever you are today, however far you feel from having a clean heart, by faith God can change your life. And He would do that if you'll fall on Him. Let's close with a word of prayer. and then Pastor Steve and uh, those who are going to serve can come forward. Father, we are not in the business of merely behavioral adjustments. But we are ambassadors for your kingdom, bearing the name and the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And to do that, we are going to require a generous spirit. You are going to have to be very generous with your spirit to us. You are going to have to make us into people very different from who we are by default. Sinners condemned to die. Father, if it be the case that some here have developed a wandering heart and mind, renew in them today a steadfast spirit. And if it be the case that there are Christians who have been legally justified by the work of your son Jesus so that they are assured of eternity in heaven with you and yet their hearts are not clean and their minds are not right. Convict them of their wandering eye and like the good shepherd, bring them back to you through faith. Help us fall upon your word and your commission and your power. Give us the strength to humble ourselves in prayer and in weakness before you. Give us the courage to surrender who we are so that we might become someone profitable, someone worthy, a servant who might hear the words, well done. Help us to do this because the days are short and our hours are numbered. Thank you for your son Jesus and his saving work. Help us to honor him rightly this morning now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.